Welcome, uh, Professor Jennifer Welsh, um, uh, Canada 150 Chair at McGill University, newly arrived oh, almost a year now from uh, European Policy Institute, and um, has got some fantastic, uh, very interesting projects. But more than that, uh, Jennifer is one of Canada's leading international relations scholars, and it is really great to have you in Montreal. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about a project that you initiated when you were at, um, um, at Oxford and then at the European Policy Institute, this individualization of war. And it sounds like a fascinating project. Could you briefly describe what it is, who were the funders, and what did you come out with? Sure. So the individualization of war came out of uh, some work I had been doing in Oxford at the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. And it was an interdisciplinary study, which is actually very hard to do. Yes, People talk it about is. it, but it's very hard to do. Yes. With lawyers, IR scholars, and moral philosophers. And what we wanted to do was look at the impact of the changes in war, both in practice and in scholarship, that give increased focus to individuals rather than collectives. Yes. So we started from the premise that these changes may or may not be desirable, we're not going to necessarily focus on that, but what impact are those changes having? Mm -hmm. Some of the pressures for individualization come from normative advancements, True. most uh, notably human rights agendas. Just, just war and petitions. Yes, exactly, mm -hmm. and the increased place of human rights law in the context of armed conflict, mm -hmm. rather than purely international humanitarian law. And some of the changes are, of course, technological. Yes. So with increased precision, we can target individuals. You don't need precisely. to do carpet bombing. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Mm. So we look at the impact of individualization in three main areas. Mm. Um, firstly, in the realm of protection. Correct. So how is this quest to protect individuals, rather than to go to war simply for reasons of state, or rather than to conduct peacekeeping simply to keep warring factions apart, but to actually protect individuals and civilians, um, what kind of challenges has that created for policy uh, actors? Globally. Globally. So we look at, at the challenges for national militaries, for humanitarian agencies, and for international uh, organizations like the UN. Yes. And then the and then the second area is on liability. Mm -hmm. So liability to harm. So what does this increased capacity and willingness to target individuals, how has that changed some of our ethical and legal frameworks around right. war? Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, to be probably the area we're all most familiar with, accountability. Mm -hmm. So how has this move to create greater accountability for individuals in how they act in war? affecting, again, yeah. And this is connected to international human rights tribunal, all that kind of stuff. Yes, to inter advancements in international criminal law. Right. So we looked at those three domains, protection, liability, and accountability. And the focus of our work was really trying to understand the dilemmas mm. that individualization poses. Course, yes. So we didn't necessarily treat it as an unmitigated good. Mm. Uh, although some of our team members were more kind of normatively yes, connected to individualization. Yeah. Yeah. And nor did we see it as a finished process, no, right? It's like globalization. Yeah, the technological advance. It's a trend, yeah. but we see ebbs and flows, mm -hmm. and how is it being contested? Mm -hmm. 
And even in, this, in the course of the project, yeah. which was five years, mm -hmm. uh, we saw the, the terrain changing. So what we thought at the beginning mm -hmm. and what we thought at the end mm -hmm. uh, evolved. And, mm -hmm. and you asked about funding. It was funded by the European Research Council. Yes. So that's very impressive. You mentioned the change in the five-year period. But the changes uh, for the good, or you found changes, some of them not so good? Or countries playing around, like great powers, United States, Russia, China, for instance? So changes in two respects, I think. Mm -hmm. One, um, the way in which individualization was being contested. Mm -hmm. So I think when we began the project, mm -hmm. we would see more questions about was it applicable in a particular case? Mm -hmm. Not whether uh, the, the striving for individual protection or individual accountability was good or bad, right. but could we always pursue that in every context? Yeah. Whereas by the end of the project, mm -hmm. the contestation was much more direct. Mm -hmm. Is it actually even possible or desirable to think about individuals in the context of armed conflict? Mm -hmm. Isn't it what some would call uh, a profoundly collective game, yeah. either between combatants and non-combatants, mm -hmm. or states, mm -hmm. or warring parties. So mm -hmm. you had a pushback of a much more fundamental kind, um, I think by the end of the five-year period, linked to yeah. the tensions and erosions of the liberal international order. Yes, and the populist, uh, rise of populism. Um, that generates a question, the connection with the responsibility to protect, which mm -hmm. you've been very involved R2P, or whatever uh, it's called. And do you see a connection there? And, and how is it implemented in these things in the legal world? You know, are, are judges, international lawyers, looking at it as a plausible way of applying to their cases? Or is it more for decision makers to consider rather than to Right, apply? yeah, yeah, very good question. Mm -hmm. So responsibility to protect was one of the principles mm -hmm. that we looked at within the protection domain of the project. Mm -hmm. We also looked at the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Right. We also looked at peacekeeping. Mm -hmm. But it was one of the elements of that research. And I think the key starting point for looking at responsibility to protect mm -hmm. was to recognize it wasn't a legal principle. Mm -hmm. It was conceived by heads of state and government to reaffirm existing legal commitments, mm -hmm. but not to create new law. So to reaffirm the importance of the Geneva Convention's mm. principles mm. that outlaw war crimes, mm. to reaffirm the Genocide Convention, mm. the prohibition of crimes against humanity. Yes. Yes. So it was designed to mobilize mm. action, to raise the cost of inaction, right. but also to build institutional capacity mm. to protect populations more effectively. Mm. And I think, to your point, to have an input, an impact on decision making, an impact on diplomacy, mm. that there would be efforts in these situations yes. to try to find common ground mm -hmm. on how to respond. I'm curious to know whether there are any pushbacks of the militaries or national security apparatuses of, for instance, the Pentagon, you know, they've adapted some, but I can imagine a situation where the military say, okay, we can't follow all this. The fog of war is such that you have to use force sometimes. And the weapons we are inventing are not going to be all the time meant to protect, even though we are yeah. supposed. So do you notice there is a considerable debate, say, take the case of the U.S. Uh, Pentagon, Defense Department. People are engaging this or they are uh, trying to come up with excuses not to implement? Yeah. 
Very good question. So I think I'd answer you in two ways. Firstly, um, the responsibility to protect as a principle was designed to encompass a range of measures. Right. Um, starting from preventive measures, but even as you move closer to a crisis, mm -hmm. uh, diplomatic, political, humanitarian tools. Yes. So it was trying to open up mm -hmm. the, the toolbox mm -hmm. so that force would be a last resort, not right. a first resort. Right. But secondly, when you need, mm -hmm. or it's deemed to be necessary to use military force, how is it that you that you do so? Yeah. And I think there, you know, the reaction of established militaries has been, on the one hand, um, very open in mm -hmm. that they have been willing to discuss how do we adapt doctrines right. so that we actually are offering mm -hmm. uh, more effective protection. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, um, to you know question whether you can always prioritize. Mm -hmm protection over military necessity. Okay. If you're, it, it, it differs hugely whether you're in a peacekeeping context or whether you're in a war context. Right. Uh, it's also, I think, reignited the old debate mm -hmm. that we saw prior to the development of responsibility to protect, which yeah. we saw in Kosovo, yeah. over whether you can actually protect from the air, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Whether you can simply create safe areas, no-fly zones, mm -hmm. or whether in order to deliver meaningful protection, you have to have boots on the ground. And of course, the willingness to do that in our contemporary system is extremely limited. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the Kosovo experience left, um, left us with a great deal of uncertainty yeah. as to whether that's an appropriate transfer of risk mm, yes. uh, protecting from the air. We mentioned uh, technology. There's a lot of concern that the AI, for instance, will, have, uh, will give countries the capability to and drones, for instance, all kinds of warfare that they are not used to. These artificial soldiers engaging in, you know, mass operations without fear of being uh, retributed or attacked back, because even if they attack back, they can get lost sort of thing. What does that mean for warfare and um, in this context, for instance, if countries um, implement these um, new technologies into mass level, kind of new uh, revolution military affairs, uh, implement them, will that affect the way they will fight the war? Because that gives them an advantage. Whoever has got the mass number of the swarming uh, soldiers, you know, the, the artificial soldiers. You know? Yeah, I think, when I, when I think about these uh, technological changes, mm -hmm. there's always, I think, a danger of us assuming that every challenge is completely novel. Whereas if we step back and we look at the evolution of the long-arm conflict uh, in particular, we see that technological change has always been part of the story. Yes. But it is the case with, particularly if we look at UAVs, mm. uh, autonomous, unmanned autonomous uh, yes. vehicles or drones, yes. here we're not yet in the world of robots. Mm. We kind of stopped our analysis there. I wish we had all the time. Yes. But when we looked at drones, what we saw that the, there were two interesting effects. Mm. Uh, on the legal and normative framework. So on the one hand, drones, the capacity for targeted killing, loosened or shaped 
the definition of who is a non-combatant in armed conflict. So if, if you recall, that's the crucial distinction. Are you a combatant or a non-combatant? And what we have seen through technology, but also through some of the ethics of war in recent years, is an opening up of that non-combatant or civilian category. And a, a line of thinking that says not all non-combatants mm -hmm. are equally innocent. Yes. And perhaps some non-combatants mm -hmm. should be liable to be killed. Mm -hmm. Political leaders, leaders of non-state armed groups. So that's an erosion of a key principle in the law of armed conflict that technology has contributed to. If we think about the controversy that surrounded Obama yes. with his targeted killing campaign, it was the discovery of information that all uh, fighting-aged males in a particular vicinity were deemed to be combatants, yes. when in fact that was a very questionable calculation. Yes, right? it is. And in fact, it is against the notion of chivalry. Yeah, yeah. You're just uh, using your advantage to kill the guy who is innocent yeah. or walking around. Um, and the other, just very quickly, T, mm. the other effect I think it's had and this is one it's, it's hard to, um, to know which direction it will go, is you could argue that it um, erodes the restraint of last resort. Right. So we've always had the use of force as a last resort, yes. necessity. But if you have means at your disposal that are lethal, but their effects are very contained, they're very targeted, yes. are you more likely to rush to lethal means yes. more quickly? Yes. And I think that's a very interesting question. That's very, to ask. It's actually relevant in the nuclear context. For the sure. Development yeah. of mini nukes. The argument against uh, it is that uh, once you know you can uh, restrict the impact, uh, the area of impact, you may use it, and in that process, you may tarnish the whole tradition, non use, or uh, taboo. And so that was the argument against the development of yeah. usable, quote unquote, yeah, mini nukes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is a very interesting fascinating area. But one thing that really bothers those who are in this sort of realist camp is, you know, these are things the great powers want and they come up with whatever is good for them, but they break them if they can, just like we talk about international law, the critics talk about. What do you think of that problem of this great power manipulation for power determines the kind of choices countries make? And also, they come up with new technologies, new ideas to circumvent it necessarily, like we mentioned the way uh, the U.S. opponent uh, targeted the terrorists. And the rising powers, China and uh, uh, in particular Russia, you know, it doesn't seem often following the international legal principles on territoriality and things like that. So where do you put great power politics in this? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it has a very, very central place. Um, but we look at it in, in two ways. So one is to acknowledge uh, and study the ways in which um, power has been intricately connected to the development of normative agendas. Sure. Um, and at times those configurations of power um, are not always what you would expect. Mm. Uh, the coalitions that push uh, particular norms mm -hmm. forward. So, for example, on responsibility to protect, it was actually, curiously, it's been a principle and norm that the United States has always been reluctant to embrace. Um, for reasons that are very historical. So, the idea of responsibility, that there is a 
mechanism or means for which the United States can be held responsible or restrained in advance from using force or not using force in the way that it deems fit. It's a long-standing US concern. It goes back to the defeat of the League of Nations in Wilson's time, right? So the US has supported um, linked normative concepts. It's been a leader in genocide prevention. It created inside the machinery of the US government an atrocities prevention board. But yet, the idea of a responsibility to protect, it has always been very reluctant. Doesn't um, want to be legally uh, bound by, yeah. And I think what's also been interesting, and this is not unique to the principles that we study, is the way in which the great powers seek to instrumentalize. Yes. Uh, just as they have with notions of self-defense yes. in the past. So we've seen Russia, for example, invoking the responsibility to protect mm. in interesting cases. Sure. But it being, that being contested. Mm. I think another way in which it's been interesting is to see over time how rising powers have felt more enabled to shape the meaning of norms. Mm. And I think China is a great example here. So the responsibility to protect principle was mm. built on three pillars. Mm. First and foremost, that states have the primary responsibility to protect their populations from atrocity crimes. Secondly, that the international community should assist states to fulfill their protection responsibilities through traditional diplomatic, political development assistance. And then thirdly, only if a state is manifestly failing to protect can international actors come in. What China has been doing very creatively within a UN context is focusing on the first pillar mm -hmm. and claiming that what the success of responsibility to protect hinges on is the capacities of states to be strong enough to protect their own populations. Mm -hmm. Now this is technically, <laughs> well, technically appealing, right? Yes. The idea that yes, we need strong states, but we need to recognize how that can also affect the implementation of that principle mm -hmm. uh, because it does re-elevate um, the sovereignty frame. Yeah. And so it is, it is just an example for us about how norms do not have fixed and absolute meanings. Yes. And now rising powers feel much more able, much more legitimate in their efforts to try to shape the meanings of norms. And I think yes. we're going to see this across the board, mm -hmm. uh, also with development assistance, mm -hmm. also with national paths. Mm -hmm. um, to but, uh, human rights protection, right? But there are critics who would say that, uh, look at the cases where it was applied, basically if you African leaders, weak states, um, none of the advanced countries, you know, you have cases of peacekeepers not performing their responsibilities or even the US initiating somewhat of an unjust war. None of them will ever be caught. <laughs> um, yeah. Even though we can say an unjust war is an unjust war, whether it is started by the U.S. or somebody else, and so that challenge still remains, and uh, powerful states somehow manage to get away with uh, whatever they do. I mean, that that's a common criticism. I'm not saying I share, but I just I think it is a powerful criticism, mm -hmm. and I mean, if we look at the military action on on the part of the United States in Iraq. Mm -hmm. That was not a war for responsibility to protect. No, it wasn't. But you're absolutely correct in saying that that war cast a shadow mm -hmm. over states from around the globe 
their views on trying to create a new regime in which force could be used for humanitarian purposes. Mm. They were very reluctant because of the fear of abuse. Mm. What's fascinating and frustrating about the way that responsibility to protect was articulated is that the coercive means for its implementation, mm. if all other means are not being used or they fail, uh, states wanted to place those coercive means in the hands of the United Nations Security Council yes, within the exi existing collective security mechanisms mm -hmm. of the Charter. Now, you know, we might ask if you're Brazil or yeah. if you're India, why would you do that? Yeah. This is a, a body that does not have representation, representation mm -hmm. which has arguably a legitimate deficit, yeah. legitimacy deficit. Yeah. But the reason at the end, well, the reasons are multiple, but one of the reasons is this fear of legitimizing the unilateral use of force. Yes. That this is the one multilateral check yes. we have. And so at the moment, mm -hmm. just like all uses of force not in self-defense, yes. we are beholden to the existing collective security mechanism. So I found it fascinating uh, in my work on responsibility to protect that in discussions or statements that state would, states would make, they would often couple their views on responsibility to protect with their frustrations about the composition of the Security, Security Council. Right? Yes. They would, Brazil would never miss an opportunity to make that point yes. uh, at the same time yeah, that it was so giving just, its view. We are right? not questioning the Security Council, but we wanted a responsibility, yeah. democratic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the collective legitimation is very important for them. Um, one of the other problem is um, um, you have these new political dynamics, illiberal democracies emerging. And if you look at the behavior of some of these countries internally, uh, for instance, China with the Uyghurs, you know, India uh, with the Muslims in Kashmir and other places, they are really uh, moving away from some of these norms, democratic norms, uh, and the protection internally using sovereignty principle and national security. I don't think the, so, uh, uh, the responsibility to protect uh, concept has been applied to these domestic situations where there is suppression going on, or Turkey, Taiwan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question you raise. So, it depends what we mean by apply. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly the case that if you look at efforts that exist in civil society and in some academic institutions right. to assess on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. where the risks of atrocity crimes are globally. Right. Those cases that you've cited mm -hmm. are mentioned. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, now, partly as a result of uh, the responsibility to protect principle, but also because of the ongoing academic work on genocide, yes. we have a much better sense today of what the risk factors are and a much greater interest in trying to have a system of early warning and prevention. So there's, there are assessments that show us the societies that are at risk. Mm -hmm. and, so, and you have civil society organizations who point to the situation of the Uyghurs in China and elsewhere. There is, but there's a distinction to be made from who's at risk and what kind of measures can we and should we take to respond, yes, right? Yes. That's a second question. Mm -hmm. So there has been discussion mm -hmm. in, in uh, in circles that work 
on atrocity crimes both academically and in civil society and even within a UN framework um, about these cases because there was a real effort to try to galvanize early warning. But how you should respond, what are the tools at your disposal, you know, we can't deny that some of these contexts are much more difficult to have any form of engagement. Um, and so that is our greatest challenge. But one thing though, many of them are, especially the rising powers, are sensitive to status depreciation. Yes. You know, for India, for instance, if the world media picks it up, like the New York Times, or, they are sensitive to it because that affects their quest for global status. So the best way probably is to link up to their own interest in becoming responsible great powers in the future. And that has to be done domestically too. Is hard. Yes, and through, I mean, also through non-coercive means. Yes, right? I yes. mean, if we rush to um, always engaging in overt shaming yes. and coercion, it makes it extremely difficult they become to engage. Yeah. Uh, but if you think about yes. um, the push within the UN system at the moment mm -hmm. for preventive diplomacy, yes. there is a an attempt and a um, an agenda which is trying to identify policy mechanisms for engaging countries earlier in a way that is not seen as intrusive. Right. Because when we think about the cases you just mentioned, mm -hmm. it's often said that you know, the use of military force is the ultimate infringement of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And of course it is. Mm -hmm. But some of the preventive measures you might want to take right. to address a situation are also so can be seen by these countries as sovereignty threatening. Yes. Prevention is also controversial. Yes, yes. And so how you find a way to yes. engage without being accused of uh, illegitimate intervention, it's yes. extremely difficult. And some of the best special representatives mm -hmm. of the Secretary General or other organizations mm -hmm. are those that are somehow able to do that with states that are in early crisis through it's, it is personality, it's experience, it's connections, uh, and figuring out who has leverage in any given situation, because yes. it will not be the same person all the time. So that brings me to our final question, which is, you had a great experience as the special representative for uh, Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon. You were advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada. Which Prime Minister was that? Paul Martin. Paul Martin, and uh, on some of these issues. And people who are in academic world often say, we don't have much influence, and you are actually disproving that, that you can influence policy making. What's your advice, what's your experience in that process? What did you find out whether these policy makers are open to our ideas, or they find us uh, too theoretical, or you know, what's, how do we address this issue of policy, or bridging the gap, as Alexander George puts it, yeah, between yeah. the policy world and theory, theory world? Well, it's a you know it's an old challenge. Oh, we've yes. we've been uh, accused of this in our profession for for a long time, and there's mm. been very few people that seemingly cross those worlds, or perhaps more than we than we realize. Yes. And I guess I guess I would say two things. One is that uh, we do need to, within the academy, make greater efforts. Mm to try to present our work not in you know, bullet points that tells policymakers exactly what to do, mm -hmm. but in ways 
that show them what different options look like in intangible terms, right? So if you are to take, if we are to take a certain approach, what what will that look like? Can you play out the implications? The that's consequences. Yeah. That's what we often fail to do, uh, and and I think there we can do a lot more. Um, our, some of our colleagues who work with large amounts of data do a great service in just magnifying and illustrating the nature and scope of problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that in and of itself, if you are a good communicator, can yeah. often be enough. And you present it in an easy exactly. fashion. Exactly. Yeah. But I think what we need to do is to be able to uh, really spell out the implications and the consequences of taking certain kinds of actions, or if not specific actions, approaches right. to resolving problems. Yeah. So and I think my, our discipline has a lot to offer, but somehow we are now into different domains, different yeah. theories, different paradigms, uh, not reaching the, the right people. Yeah. yeah, and I think the other is that we should resist the temptation mm -hmm. to be answering only the questions that the policymakers tell us we should be answering. True. That there is so much value in our distance, mm -hmm. in being the being the voice that actually suggests yes. new issues, yes. that isn't just following what they are interested yes. in, coming up, with but yes. actually to point over the horizon. You're yes. not thinking about this now, exactly. but you should be thinking about it because the long term implications. And that I think many of us who have wanted to be engaged in the policy world have erred on the side of wanting to be relevant right. and therefore not thinking ahead, not looking beyond. Yes. We need to be thinking of the questions they should, they should be, be asking themselves. We need to be big thinkers. So yeah. Jennifer, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure and uh, hopefully we can continue this conversation at some other point and uh, wish you all the best with your work. Mm -hmm.